Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another weekly live session with Colorism Healing. I am your host, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. And I'm really excited this week because we have another guest, Jorge Vidal. You might have heard me referring to Jorge as Armando on the lives. Hey, how are you? Welcome in. Come on in. So we're going to get started in just a second as soon as our guests arrive and request to join. It'll be a really interesting chat focusing on how colorism is truly a global, cross-cultural, and intersectional issue. And I look forward to meeting with this particular person today because they've been a regular on the lives for a long time. So one of the things I'm doing with you know bringing people on is those of you who show up on the lives and leave comments and are interactive or who send me DMs, right? I'm really excited to like bring you all on live and talk to you and see your face. And maybe when the um, COVID-19 is finally, where most of us are finally vaccinated, I have a dream of doing like a world tour and like going to all of your cities and like having like coffee or tea with folks. <laughs> so um, we're going to get started in just a second. So the contest, some announcements before I bring on um, Armando slash Jorge is the contest is still going on now through April 30th, and you can ex- submit any kind of writing. So we accept poetry, essays, short stories, fiction, nonfiction, and um, anything. Oh, oh, this week is my TED Talk week. That's one of the things I wanted to say. So the TED Talk is happening Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., but I'm speaking first on the agenda, so I'll be speaking around 10 a.m., and you all can live stream it. I think on Facebook, I definitely have a link on Facebook. On um, Instagram, I have the URL in the description underneath the TED post that I posted on Monday. So definitely check that out. Of course, I'll be talking about colorism. So I'm really excited. All right, let's see. So whenever you're ready, Armando, you can request to join. Hey, Marley Bob. Yes, come to London for tea with me. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I would love to come to London. And I know like several people that I've met on here are in London or the UK or in Germany and like some people from Australia. So I'm excited to really have travel up and running again. Hey, my hue is the highlight. How are you? Some of these people seem new. Mixed in Hamilton. Hey, how are you? Mixed in Hamilton. Hamilton, is that like a city? Where is Hamilton located? Um, Yeah, so Marley Bob is saying hello to you too. Oh, how? (laughs) So if you click on on my screen name at the top left-hand corner, It'll, it should say um, request to join, or I can invite you to join. Let's see.
There we go. Okay, so I sent you a request to join. It is Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Canada is so close. Like, I have no excuse for not having gone to Canada. I'm a little closer now being in the Midwest than when I was in Louisiana. So exciting. Let's see. Let's talk with Tara. No, you're not late at all. We're just getting started. We got started at 2 o'clock. And I'm bringing on a guest, so we'll officially jump into the conversation around that time. Hey, Gogo Kuro, Kuro, welcome. UAE here, come to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> y'all are so exciting. I love that y'all are everywhere. I did not know you were in Abu Dhabi. Like seriously, mellow and chill. <laughs> That is too exciting to me. Okay, so I have London, I have Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Wait, I think I just missed it. Did I just miss it? Okay, let's try that again. Did you request? Let me let me go ahead. You know how technology is a hater sometimes, y'all. <laughs> Hello, dear, from France. France, yay! And this is, go. oh, okay, so you're from France. Nice, welcome. Hey, how are you, Akusua? Um, so, yeah, being from Louisiana, um, we speak a French dialect, French Creole dialect. Nigeria, y'all, this is so amazing. I love it. I, keep telling me where you're from. So we, so we have London, we have... Um, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We got Abu Dhabi. We got Nigeria in the house. Welcome. Yes, we have lots of colorists to talk about in the Middle East, right? Okay, so yeah, we're going to bring you on too. <laughs> You're going to help us unpack colorism in the Middle East specifically. Um, let's see. Okay. So do you want to try... Oh, I see. Yeah, so it's saying the app has to be upgraded in order for you to try. So do you want to, like, maybe log off and do a quick app update, Armando, and then try again? It's like you uninstall the app, Instagram, and then reinstall it, see if it updates for you? Because that's the error message I just got. Um, Etique Mai says, originally from France. Okay, currently from Haiti, currently in Washington, D.C. Um, Algeria. Okay, Algeria, but originally from France. <laughs> Y'all are so cool. Okay, cool. Take your time. No rush. I'm easy. I think we're having a good time getting to know where people are from. <laughs> so we are uh, happy to wait for you to come on. Um, OMG, I have family in Hamilton. No one ever knows where that is. I, yeah, because I didn't know, right? See, and so y'all should like connect. See, when we meet and introduce ourselves on these lives, you end up connecting with people in ways you wouldn't have otherwise. Hey, Sienna. Oh, there we go. Got it. Hey, Sienna. Um, from everywhere, <laughs> Etik underscore my. Hey! <laughs> finally, Yay! finally got in. 
Yes, it is so great to have you. Look at my shirt. I brought me my shirt today. Yay! You got the shirt. <laughs> I think I was so worried about getting the shirt right that I didn't acknowledge you right. I guess the priority is different, right? <laughs> right? Well, you know, the style, the fashion, the swag is always. I know. It's always cute. Let me get my shirt going, and then I'm like, forget about updates on technology. Forget about. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to you, uh, welcoming in the. The conversation and all of the things that you were saying in the beginning, so I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So we'll get started with you. Oh, and so for anyone who doesn't know the shirt, and do you want me to call you Armando or Jorge? Uh, you can call me Jorge. Okay, Jorge. So the shirt that you have on is I See Color and I Love It, which is a, a, a phrase that I put on a shirt and I have for sale. So a little quick plug there. Um, but go ahead, please, and introduce yourself. I did post the bio on my Instagram feed, but just in your own voice, if there's anyone who didn't maybe read the bio, tell us a little bit about who you are. Sure. Well, thank you for the invitation. It feels kind of weird to be on this side with you because I'm always watching from the outside looking in. So I'm like, oh my God, it's like, you know, you're with your celebrity crush and you get invited and you're like, oh my God, it's so amazing. Um, but I'm, I'm really thankful for the invitation and the conversation. Um, many of you, you know, have read the Bible, but some of you may not. Uh, my name is Jorge Vidal. And I kind of like to I introduce myself as a, a, a matchmaker, organizational matchmaker. I work with a lot of culturally specific organizations across the U.S. And many culturally specific organizations are often do not have the resources to, and support uh, through a cultural lens. And so a lot of the work that I do is I try to connect them with those resources through the lens in where they're doing their work, through their context, through their culture. And so they always have to go through this double adaptation process. So they, every resource support has to kind of go through an implementation so they could actually apply it in their communities. So we try to kind of cut down that work for them and try to find the resources that speaks to them, that has a representation that speaks through their context. And so a lot of my work is doing that matchmaking with culturally specific organization. Then on the side, well, I, I'm also a consultant and I started doing a page that I was telling you about, the Finding L, which is a masculinity project mm -hmm. that is slowly picking, picking up. Maybe I need to, we need to sit down and do a consulting around like, how do I kick off and have more visibility on that page because I'm slowly starting it. Um, and, but that's a conversation, it's, it's both therapy and a conversation that I want to have around masculinity that is often, I think, missing in some of the conversations that we have. So that's a little bit about myself. Yes, all right. So we're, we're definitely going to talk about masculinity in this question in terms of colorism. But I think to give us more of a kind of a foundation how do you understand colorism or how have you seen it show up in your life throughout over the years over your lifetime? Yeah. So I, I just realized too, as, as we practice, and I know that you do a lot of healing and sometimes I think, you know, when we have these technology hiccups or when we have hiccups in like live videos, especially when you're so concerned about um, the conversation, sometimes we can be not present you know so i want to kind of take a couple of minutes to like round myself and say like i'm really excited again to be here uh, enjoying this conversation for me colorism was a little bit difficult um because when i was younger i didn't really understand or didn't obviously have the language as a child to understand like what was colorism and what was happening in my family um so a lot of people uh, when i say i'm peruvian 
back when I migrated in 1989, they didn't know uh, what Peruvian was or where Peru was. So a lot of our experiences of people who are outside of Puerto Rican descent or Mexican, we have a similar narrative, right? Uh, when we came back in those days, they would uh, usually say, you know, are you Puerto Rican? Are you Mexican? But they wouldn't identify the country if it wasn't Puerto Rico or Mexican. And so a lot of people now know Peru through our foods, right? So every, everybody that I talk to in Peru, uh, like in the U.S., in the context of the U.S., either they mention ceviche or chicken, the green sauce, or something related to that, to, to, those, to those three things. And obviously a lot of people go to Cusco. Um, but, you know, I think as, as growing up as a Peruano, Latino, um, I started kind of doing uh, some work on myself and kind of going back into my culture and dissecting it a little bit more. And what I realized is our, our anti-blackness runs so deep that any shades of any like different color shades were considered like black, right? So being called negro, even if you have a, a little slight variation of, sh of shade. And I remember like growing up, my brother, um, he had like this, uh, uh, blonde patch on the side of his of his hair and I remember just the looks that he got um, just for being so light you know and having fair skin and also having like um, uh, blonde hair you know and I and the, the only thing I would remember is just the comments that he received right um, uh, he's he was like called beautiful que lindo and like it was just re repetitive right all of those lindo words and and I wasn't kind of getting the same attention as I was growing up you know and so I realized in that moment that blackness meant something different than having like light skin or having blonde hair and all of that and so that was kind of my experience as as like thinking that is is different right and I often kind of talk about it that experience because as a child you don't know the impact that it has growing up um but I always felt like I was looking in, you know, that I was never part of that conversation of beautiful or like um, of beauty because it was something that it was really good for. It was like only pertained to my brother who was light skinned, you know. Um, and so and then I think the impact of that, because I know that you talk a lot about intersectionality, but that experience of always looking in combined with my identity of gayness also made me kind of be in the outside. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also the idea of masculinity, that I wasn't the same as the other boys, right? Like they were really rough and they were really, you know, into playing cars. And I wasn't into all of that. So again, right? So I'm, now I'm walking further away from what's normal. And then, you know, and then I had three experiences of um, child abuse before the age of 10. And so now all of this combined create like a deadly weapon, right, in, 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 in the trauma that I experienced as a child. And I think that had a longer effect um, as I grew up. And the way that it manifested itself is seeking validation, right, through people and through places, um, just to be validated, to be seen, right? But it is all of this experience combined with colorism that really had an impact of me growing up. Um, and then obviously the experience of coming as an immigrant to the U.S., having a different type of experience, you know. Mm. So I know I threw a lot out there. But I, I think what's, what's really hard is to separate one thing. Yeah. I think sometimes everything is combined into one, right? And it is, it is the intersection of all of these identities and all, all of this experience um, that, that it makes it really complex for people to understand.
right? Um, the complexity of all of that. Yeah, so everything you just said, Jorge, was beautiful. And I think a, a, like a great review, and you almost like you practiced that answer. <laughs> I know you did it because we didn't practice at all. Yeah. It was just like really laid out and it's really clear like how colorism can't be extracted or like isolated from any other experience, right? It has to be taken into context of the culture we grow up in, the country we grow up in, the family yeah. Grow up in. I resonate with the sibling thing, especially a sibling of the same sex or the same gender, right? Mm. And the comparison there between how people react to the sibling who's lighter skinned or more whiter skinned than versus the sibling who's darker, it was also very apparent to me, right? I don't know if my sister's watching today, but it was a similar dynamic. And she's several shades lighter than me. Her eye color is a little bit lighter, her hair texture is just a little bit looser, right? We have the same features. Yeah. But I resonate with that. And I know so many people do, right? And that sibling dynamic, um, I think, really impacts the way you experience colorism in the world. And people yeah. who don't have that sibling experience probably experience colorism in the world slightly different. And that's a speculation. Yeah. And, and then you're holding all of that yourself as a child, trying to make sense of that, right? Like, you want to put words into it. It's like, I wanted to put words into my gayness and what I was feeling. And I couldn't have the words, right? And I couldn't have the experience around masculinity. And I couldn't have the experience around the sexual trauma. But it just, and then I think beyond that, there was also silence around Blackness. And then silence around Indigenous communities and in our culture that you just felt like an alien, right? Like you're the only one carrying this weight of like not feeling um, beautiful, right? As a child and, and not sharing that with anybody, right? Because I just think people just always saw it as a joke, right? And so you're like carrying it, carrying it, carrying it until you get to a point where you're like, oh my God, I need support and I, I need mm -hmm. help. And this is where the masculinity piece is, right? Because as a man, you're taught to be strong and to kind of carry it and then, you're like, well, where do I go, you know? And so I think all of that trauma, I think, you know, um, is what I'm kind of working through now um, and, and connect my experiences to what happened, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think all of that is, is part of it. Yeah. Um, Nalo Darling has a good question, and it's actually the question I was going to ask next. So same, same wavelength here, right? Um, so do you, how do you, how did you see your experience shifts from Peru to the United States, right? In terms of your experiences of being considered Negro, right? In Peru yeah. versus in the United States where people would very much not call you that, right? Yeah. So how, how what was that dynamic shift like for yeah. you? Yeah. And then we have to also, I think there's also like subcategories to blackness in, in well, you know, I, I could only speak, I don't want to generalize, but you know, from my experience in my family and quote, and like, close close uh close people in my life there was like a, a person a person who was negro was black and there was negro fino right mm -hmm. and i was trying to kind of translate it loosely but it's like a refined black person and what they mean by refined black person is like a person who has like that not the african kind of um you know quote unquote um uh uh the western kind of you know uh features in in their face or hair their nose, right? So it's negro fino, and then you have negro, right? So there's, mm -hmm. and so many people would be like, oh, I could, I could be with a negro fino, but I'm not going to be with a negro, right? Like there were subcategories too that it was very complex to understand and why 
it was like these two type of blackness that you kind of relate to, right? Like one was more passable and then the other one, right? Yeah. I, um, and I know, I, I mean, I don't know if you've heard that term or, you know. Um, I haven't, but Fino is F-I-N-O. Yeah, Fino, yeah. Um, and so I think when I came to America, what really shifted for me is that everything got combined into Latinoness, mm. um, right? Um, because when I came, everybody would ask me that, you know, what, I mean, we still get asked this, the same question, right? Like, where are you from? You know, like, where, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm Peruvian. And they would be like, Peruvian? They're like, oh, you're Latino. And I'm like, well, I don't know what Latino is, right? Because I was like young, I was 10 years old. I'm like, I'm Peruvian, I'm Peruvian. And so for so long, it was just that term that was given. And I think that is mixed with colorism in a lot of ways because, you know, I am, I am lighter, you know, but then when I go to a beach, well, I can't go to a beach now, but, you know, I live in Florida and that's a different conversation. But when I go to a beach, I'm darker, right? I'm a little bit darker, but I'm not, as, I'm not dark, dark, right? And what does that mean? And, and it was all those conversations that I was trying to have with people that I didn't even understand myself. So my whole conversation was around Latinoness. And my, my oppression, both systematically and individually, was around Latinoness. Um, and I felt it. Um, you know, and I felt the otherness through my identity of being Latino and being Peruvian. Um, and I was kind of tacked with the myth around Puerto Ricans, the myth around Mexicans, you know. And they just, they just put us all together into one, which was the Latino experience. Um, so that's how I kind of started feeling the oppression in the U.S. through the Latinoness. And that's when everything got combined. And it was not until much le later that I started separating and seeing that privilege, right? That I am Latino, but I, I navigate through a light-skinned Latino, which is totally different than an experience. And I know that you talked about this in so many um, lives, but that's when I started realizing, right? Like, there's still privilege here, right? There's still privilege in my identity of masculinity. There's still privilege in my identity of gayness. There's still privilege in so many ways that I still hold, right? Um, I love that I, I started writing there's there's in one live you said how do how do I navigate the world right and it's the it's I navigate the world through um, both an experience of oppression and also an experience of privilege uh, and simultaneous and I think that's why it's so hard to talk about this because in white culture they want us to talk about it in a linear way for them to make sense of how we're going to get step one two three four so I could understand intersectionality right but it doesn't, it, from my experience, doesn't, doesn't feel that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's exactly what we all have to do, mm -hmm. right? Look at privilege and oppression, privilege and marginalization simultaneously, because the vast majority of people have an interesting combination of all of those things, right? It's mm -hmm. both um, an interrogating and I was watching something recently, I think Mixed Bloom Room shared something um, about how the, in these conversations, we always have to ask, right, who else is on this ladder, but on a lower rung than I am, right? Yeah. And I'll be willing to ask that because it's, it's almost romanticized to be at the lowest end of the rung, right? We, so I, um, this might be controversial, but I think sometimes we romanticize being the most oppressed person. Mm. In culture and society in the room. And so I think what I see is resistance on the part of people who are racial minorities, for example, to acknowledge that they are actually not 
and their individual identity at the bottom of the rung. Because yes, they might be a racial minority, but they might be a cis het, male, able-bodied, you know, Christian Protestant, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, middle class, educated, like all these other forms and layers of privilege. Um, and so I feel, and I feel it. So it's so interesting. You know, I do a lot of work in gender-based violence, and and that field is heavily dominated by women, right? So I know that men in that field get, um, you know, there's like this wow factor when we come in, right? Because there's not a lot of men in that in that field, right? So I understand that. But when I'm in the conversation with men around engaging men, it's totally different because I am mostly for a lot of a, a lot of the conversations, I'm the only gay man, you know, mm -hmm. trying this conversation so I do have privilege because I am the only man in the room often having this conversation around allyship and feminism and all of that stuff and then a group of men come in and they're all cisgender heterosexual men and then it becomes all like you you can't have that conversation right like you cannot be in the men conversation because you're gay right so my identity of like masculinity is intertwined with all of that, right? And so, yeah, it's, it, it, that's why it's so hard when we say teach intersectionality, teach, you know, it's like, I don't know if I could teach you, but I could talk to you in a way that I could uh, make you understand the complexity of it. And I think we have to also be mindful too, for a lot of us who do this work, is that there's trauma that kicks in when we're explaining it, you know? And so we have to also be mindful of like, how you take care of yourself through these conversations as well, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard because in some spaces, it's like you're walking in eggshells. I was trying to explain to someone that it's really difficult because not only are you invited to talk about intersectionality, but there's also spaces where they tell you how to talk about it. And so you're like, okay, wait a second. So you want me to come in to a intersectionality conversation, but then you're giving me the framework or the parameters on how to have this conversation. Um, and that's, that becomes really uh, triggering for me and traumatizing, right? Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you think your either phenotype or your complexion or even like your body type and your physical appearance basically has influenced or shaped or impacted your experiences of your masculinity or your gender identity. That's a, that's a heavy question. <laughs> that one I should have sent ahead of time. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think in different, in different ways, I think, you know, well, here in the gay culture, let me talk about it through also in the lens of gay culture, right? In gay culture, there's also, there's a big problem also with colorism that we don't often don't talk about and name, right? And so I know like my light skin give me access to men that most typically um, black gay men often don't have access to or give space or being seen or validated. So I recognize that's a privilege that I have, right, in the gay culture, um, and that I think is very problematic. And I'm also um, slender. I'm thin body, right? And so there's a lot of privilege also on that when I'm, in, if I'm, you know, want to meet someone or if I'm in the bar, if I want to have, you know, connection with someone, that's also going to give me privilege, right? Um, and then I'm, and, and then realistically, that gives you access to systems too, right? Because, you know, when I am in front of a room, obviously they're gonna acknowledge me uh, first and a person who is large body, right? Or they're gonna give them space. And then, you know, in, in the training that I, I've been going through uh, with uh, 
um, be nourished. How systematically also people are not even welcome in the room just by the chairs, the size of the chairs, right? Like you can even sit in a chair, first of all. So let's just talk about accessibility into a place and then how you get validated and seen in a place, which is, I think, is two different conversations, right? So there's a lot of privilege as a, as a, gay, a gay male navigating um, this, this uh, uh, light skin, thin body. I, I just have a lot of privilege. But that doesn't also mean that comparison to other gay men, I'm still not seen as like the ideal gay men, right? Like, so that there's like this limbo effect because I, you know, I may be thin and I, you know, for, for people, they, they will say I'm attractive, right? And I, and I, and I, own, and I own that. Um, but I think what also people don't, uh, don't understand is when you carry all this trauma of not being seen and validated, you still have a legacy of self-esteem that you have to work through. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I try not to, in my work, I try not to make assumptions of how people is presenting because you don't know what inside is happening because what you see in the outside, it may not be what I experienced in the inside, which is, I think is completely different, you know? Um, and I do have obviously, um, like a lot of self-doubt I have, I, there's, I pick, you know, myself apart in many ways. And I try to be vulnerable around that because I think that this is the only way that we can break through is through that vulnerability, heart to heart connection. And just saying like, I also struggle with that, but I know my experience is completely different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, because I'm not systematically oppressed by it. Um, I mean, there may be prejudice around myself and in, in the gay world and all that stuff, but I don't feel that, you know? So beautiful. I'm so touched that you are being so open and like sharing this with us. So I have, I've been writing this down. I also want to acknowledge the person, if you're still watching, who said that in Angola, they have preto fino, which is very similar to negro fino, apparently. So the, even mm -hmm. the term is the same. And then someone else was acknowledging that the sentiment, even if we don't have that term, the sentiment still applies. Yeah. What I just wrote down, what you see on the outside may not reflects what's on my what I feel on the inside yeah that is like whew, mind blowing like mind opening mind expanding for a lot of people because it does and you just like perfectly acknowledging that yes I'm systematic systematically privileged but that doesn't mean I um I see myself the way society might position me right I might not feel into my social position and I think that is so many people can relate to that so many people so thank you um and and, and also like I, because I've been victimized by men in in my life right so as growing up as a as a as a child who was more feminine who was softer um, and then also the, the there's physical sexual abuse and there's bullying, all of that combined. I didn't want to be in spaces with men, right? Like spaces with men was fearful to me. And so the privilege that the, the privilege of, of men came a little bit later from what I understood. Now looking back, I, I recognize that I have privilege because my little, my sister who was older was, you know, giving different chores than I did, it had different freedoms. So I recognized that, free, that, that language, that, that privilege that I had. But I just did not want to be with men. I just wanted to be with the, with women because in a lot of ways, I was just being harmed over and over by men um, just because of who I was, right? And so that also takes me away from that conversation a little bit. So I go in and out, in and out all the time, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it's, it's like a, a matter of not flattening our experiences, right? And so yes, yeah. it might be part of 
a group mm-hmm. in terms of like being a man. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean we have the same, we show up in the same way as other men. It doesn't mean that we are on the same ladder, rung of the ladder as all those, <laughs> right? So even, there's even a ladder just for men. If we're talking yeah. about hierarchy of social hierarchy even if we just look at one identity category there's still a ladder within that category like a subcategory um i love this quote from this woman and i need to find the woman who said it because i think it's just such a if i had this quote before like it would just be powerful she said like no not all men hold patriarchy but patriarchy holds all men right and that to me was like that was powerful to me because that is so true because we always try to defend and say that's not me that's not me but patriarchy holds all of that all of us just like colorism you know we have this we're, we're navigating the systematic and so when you navigate that system of privilege for so long it, it creates blind spots and so it's, it's our job to kind of like reflect and say like where where's my where are my privilege where's my privilege i'm not seeing it like what what do i need to learn and unlearn in this process right because i'm held by patriarchal society i'm i'm a man i'm still held by it you know so I'm i still- love it you just got so many gems. <laughs> um, in that interrogation, that intentional, purposeful, proactive interrogation, like you shouldn't wait for someone to call out your problem. Mm-hmm. You should already be actively saying, okay, where's my blind spot? Or even approaching situations that help you make become aware of your blind spots. Or surrounding yourself with people, with a community, with a network that yeah. lovingly point out your blind spots for you, like help you in that process, right? And I think the, the the body privilege, I can relate to that one too. And it's never been a question for me. Like I've never, because I, I remember someone in college saying, well, I don't know, I'm not dark skinned. So I don't know what dark skinned people go to. And I immediately was like, well, I'm not a plus size woman, but you can't, like, I just can't logically imagine pretending like people with larger bodies are not pushed aside, are not ignored, are not, you know, given a harder time in society. But the, the systemic piece about literally the way the world is built mm-hmm. people with bodies like mine, yeah. because of my eyes and because of my abilities, my physical abilities, right? Um, I never have to worry about going on a flight, going, like any, no space. I never have to worry about any space and whether or not I can fit into that space, whether or not I can navigate yeah. that space. That is yeah. a huge systemic privilege, right? Yeah. Um, and it's I- one ones that we we can see is like it's literally structural so we talk about like structural racism right but in terms of like able-bodiedness or like you know mm-hmm. privilege it's literally a structure <laughs> you yeah. know I, I, um, I totally agree with that um that's why I, I yeah I, yeah i always reflect on that and i always kind of reflect i love that song by lauren hill um i get out and she says uh i love there's a there's a quoting that song that says uh traditions are killing our freedom you know and i think it's these traditions that we don't question and i think it's the question that brings us liberation right it's it is the questioning of everything on why this is set up and why can we how do we do it differently right um and so i, I think when you when you talk about the the light skin and now with some of the knowledge around my country around my family it's like how do i go back and like you know, um, have these critical conversations with my familia, with my mom, my tias. Um, and, and so we can kind of 
kind of start engaging in it, you know, because yeah. silence has, has run so rampant in our in our culture. And we have allowed it for so long that I think it's, it starts with our families, right, and, and interrupting that silence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, because I'm looking at this um, comment that just came through. Comment slash question. I'm going to take it as a question, MAGA cast. <laughs> um, but like what you're saying about disrupting the silence, and I absolutely agree, like the silence um, sort of makes the wounds fester. They become more infected when we try to keep them silent. Um, but so I think your comment is actually part of what Naga Cass is asking. Is like part of what you have to do once you recognize your privilege is be willing to disrupt the silence, is to be disruptor of silence, especially when more vulnerable groups of people are threatened or would be in more danger if they spoke up, right? And so yeah. if you're in less danger, either social danger or physical danger, then you take the onus upon yourself to break that silence in the moment. But they're saying, you know, besides being aware is going further is that what is more difficult for me, I can try to be aware of my privileges, but I struggle to know how to fight the system. Um, and so it, do you have any experience with that? Like going beyond just being aware and actually, you know, taking action in some way. Well, I, you know, I think that the action comes in the, the every time you come in the space, in what conversations you kind of fill in the gaps, right? Like I do a lot of HIV, gender-based violence work. And so when do we, when we talk about gender-based violence and we talk about women's freedom, do we are we including like transgender women, women with disabilities, large body women? And then how do we make space for those voices to be centered? And I think that's kind of like the work that we always do. And then also because I've been taught so much by women around healing, right? Because in men's spaces, we have a very limited, I think, experience of healing, which is a lot of it is talk therapy. But what was healing for me was crystals, tarot cards, Reiki. They don't have that for men, right? So I've learned in those spaces, I've learned in women's spaces, like how to heal with that. So how, what I do is I, I try to bring women and to co-present with me in many of the conversations, create visibility moments, um, share the, the money um, for some of these engagements, right? Because I've learned by women, so they should be kind of with me, co-facilitating in a lot of ways, the work that I am doing. Um, I think it's also because I work with a lot of cultural leaders who navigate white systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really difficult, right? Because if you, you're brought, sometimes, okay, this is the experience that I've had in the US working in social services, which I know that Maybe it's not the, the time, because I know you love social work and I love social work, but social work is problematic in a lot of ways, right? The way that we have the system set up. But so a lot of organizations would, you know, they see an issue with diversity, they will hire either one brown person, one gay person, and it feels like the most is kind of effect, right? Like bring them all in, bring them all in. And so like, you know, and so one person kind of carrying all this weight to bridge people, to heal community, to do all those interventions is a lot. And then on top of that, you have to teach and reflect. And that's very traumatizing. And for many of them cannot leave that job, right? And so a lot of the ways that we do is how do we safety plan inside the system? So you could kind of be mentally, physically, and emotionally okay while you're navigating this white system that keeps telling you you're not enough, that keeps questioning your, your knowledge, that keeps put, putting you one test after another test, is that how do we safety plan? And that safety plan is very individual with a person, uh, with a situation that is going on. And for me, how I have always safety plan around that is having uh, a community to fall back on. Because I know that sometimes I, I haven't been able to leave the system 
And every time I, you know, I bring up an injustice, they will be like, hey, did that really happen? You know, we know this, right? Like, did that really happen? Maybe let's see it from both sides, you know? It's like, no, fuck that, right? Like, it happened. I felt traumatized. I can't explain it to you because I'm in my trauma and you're like, um, everything's in it in the present moment. So I can't explain it to you, right? Um, so we kind of help people safety plan around that, around the systems and how they could survive it. Um, and if they're planning to get out, okay, so when do you thinking like possibly, and so we do all that safety planning in the work that I do, you know, um, and that, that takes a lot of time, a lot of time to think about that. But community is so healing. Um, the community has been really healing for me. Um, yeah. And so I don't know if I answered the question. I know I went through so many of um, but. No, you're dropping so many nuggets. And like a lot of the comments have been, you know, saying thank you and much needed conversation. Um, there are a couple of things specifically that you either mentioned in some of your live comments or that you DM'd me, you know, in the past that I kind of want to touch on briefly. You know, Instagram is going to cut us off in about 20 minutes. <laughs> aye, aye. Um, but at first, I kind of want to, what shocked me, and you all probably remember this moment for people who watch my lives, but we were talking about, I don't remember what we were talking about, actually, but you mentioned being called um, Kunta Kente. Yeah younger and so i'm wondering if you could talk about what that meant especially since because it's i was i'm honestly like how is that correlation made for someone growing up in peru versus kunta kente which is like the you know north american slave narrative right so i'm curious to even know like how that icon of you know kente um what it meant right for in your community in peru like meaning your actual neighborhood, but also, you know, nationally as well. Um, yeah, so what is the context behind that and how yeah. I don't know what it really it meant um, back in the day because, I, like I said, there was no conversation around slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still, when I came to the U.S., there was still no conversation around slavery, right? It was like you find your own, like, books through it. But there was no conversations. I think they just had, so in Peru, they played like these novelas from other countries. And so they were playing the miniseries. Yeah. Gotcha. And the way that they, way that they relate is like anybody who was black or like quote unquote black or um, there was blackness in, the, you know, like different shades, they would just have this, this, they will remember names, I think of shows or series and then they would just tag you to it. And I think that, I think that's the problem because they don't see the correlation of all of those things, right? Um, and I think it's just using it as a joke, right? Because my cousin, I have a cousin that he's, he's darker. Um, his father is, is a dark Peruano. He's an Afro-Peruvian. And my aunt was light-skinned. And so he was, he, he's kind of in the middle, right? And I remember growing, uh, when, he, when he was born, they used to call him Gato, like a black cat. And so every time he would like walk by, they would be like hissing, like, you know, like a cat. And mm -hmm. so for him, it was like, don't call me, don't call me negro, right? Like, it was just like, uh, moreno, I'm moreno, or I'm cafe con leche, or I'm, you know, it's just that my color right now is, is, is changed. I don't know what he would say. Like, he would say some crazy things. And I, I'm like, I don't know where you're getting this stuff. But I think it's just the, we were attached to names that people just, you know, saw on TV. And, and I don't know if it was a correlation to that slavery narrative. It was more about like, they just wanted to be a joke, you know? Um, but it was a joke that was harmful, right, in many ways. Um, yeah. And, and I think, and, I, and to be honest with you, you know, I think that a lot of people don't know, still don't know that there's Black people in Peru. 
I think there's people that don't know that, right? They just don't have that. It's like, I want to go to, you know, like I told you, it's like chicken, ceviche, like Cusco, you know, it's like we create, you know, you, you're you going to be in the tech talk soon, you know, the tech talk of the one single story, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a whole one single story about every community, every person, right? And I think mm -hmm. Peru, there's like this narrative about Peruvians, um, and in that narrative, does not include Black Peruvians and does not include the indigenous um, communities, right? Um, and you have seen, you know, the Blackness in Latin America. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm -hmm. The shows that, that were on in Peru, you know, with the Black face and, and they were the brunt of the jokes. That's how it, it was seen, right? But those, the narrative um, creates a legacy, creates a narrative, and that has impact uh, in all of our systems, you know? Yes. Absolutely. And I, so that TED Talk, Chimamanda and Goze Adichie mm -hmm. story. And I, I was just thinking part of, because of mass media, because a very select few people control popular narratives in terms of yeah. textbooks or even, you know, children's books or news stories or movies and music, um, they get to control the narrative, right? And so they kind of drive a lot of that. Um, although I say now there is less and less, um, there are less and less excuses, right, for not being able to find alternative narratives. But I think um, your, your point about people not knowing that there are Black Peruvians is very, very much like a huge myth, right? I hear African-Americans, for example, um, if they, you know, if they find out that someone who presents as black, like mm -hmm. if, if they look like me, but they end up being from a South American country or a Central American country, they're like, oh, I thought you were just black. And like, even that like phrase, right, that statement shows that we just, as I don't think the world just really yeah. know that black people are everywhere. Yeah, like, they're yeah. everywhere. And I think that, you know, my mom has moved in with me. Now she's living with me for two years and mm -hmm. I have found every documentary that I can on like Peruvian, like black experience, how slavery impacted us, the contribution of black people in Peru. Um, there are organizations in Peru that fight uh, anti-blackness in the, in, in the media representation. And so I think it's like, it's, it's like, you know, this, there's a poem that says, you know, um, getting yourself together. What about undoing yourself? Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I feel like undoing yourself with all of those things, right? I was one of the most amazing, I love poetry. Uh, I don't know if you ever read it, it's called Salt. Yeah! I think we have a lot of things in common over here. I think that you, we definitely need to do tea, coffee, or, or some Peruvian food. <laughs> Florida, <laughs> get some coffee. <laughs> but that resonates to me, right? Like that to me resonates because it's about like getting, like, uh, it's, 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 it's like breaking all these narratives that we had and like what is true, like sifting through it, like what is true, like, you know, we could still have pride in my country because I could also critically analyze all of the problems in Peru, right? Um, and I see it and, you know, you see it when you go to Peru, uh, the jokes, the visibility, you know? Um, and so it, it's just, it's, it's, it's definitely an impact. Yeah. So a couple of other things that you mentioned. You mentioned once um, about colorism and TikTok, our social media in general. Mm -hmm. 
So what are some of the, because this is like a more contemporary setting, right? TikTok is relatively new. It used to be musically, but it's still a newer, more recent thing. Um, so what are some of the like egregious forms of colorism or anti-Blackness or anti-Indigenous that you've seen on TikTok or just in social media in general? And do you think social media has done something to the conversation of colorism or has it like made it worse? Has it made it better? What's your opinion on that? No, it's freaking horrible. I, I pass hours and hours on TikTok and I try to report as many videos as I can. The, the problem is that it, it is these videos that are racist, that are like, you know, that they're homophobic, they're all jokes, all of that stuff, jokes and quote unquote, um, opens a door, right? Um, for other people to write these nasty comments and, and it becomes this conversation. And what happens is that um, they get 2 million views, right? And then nobody's like going back and forth in these videos of like, why it's problematic. Just yesterday, I was just having this conversation of uh, in Spain. Now that's, if you want to even make it worse, a, a country that has colonized almost all Latin America, you know, these this kids who are making these videos of like, so there was a black guy uh, a black um, Spanish guy and then the white the white Spaniard and the, the black guy was on the back and they did a video basically saying, uh, you know, things around white and black. And he was all the way on the back. And so the, the comments in the, the section goes, where is the black person? I can't even see him. He's so dark. Mm -hmm. Like those jokes like that. And then they were talking about his hair. Like, you know, they were playing all the stereotypes, right? Like ganchitos in his, in his hair. So he's talking about the, the, the dreadlocks. And then the black guy comes in and says, you know, uh, black guys have big dicks. You know, like all of these like interactions of all these stereotypes. And the guy's handle name, it was, um, some, it had the three KKs on it. I was like, I don't know if this is intentional, but everything summing, like everything that is like lining up is like, racism as like as 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 blame as you can see it right um but this video had 2.2 million views on on tiktok and and if you you know what i do i don't know if you do this but this is my little this is what i do often i i look at the video but i also read the comments mm -hmm. in the comments you can see all of the all of the things that we carry around our anti-blackness as latino community mm -hmm. um, all of the jokes you you could only see his teeth like all of these jokes that was that was just you know it was just really really nasty and um for and and you know again it is the visibility that they're getting and nobody's interrupting these conversations or or tiktok is not doing anything i don't know if that's the video still on you know um and so i don't know i mean it's it's a it's a bigger system because i, I was also reading the narrative of um uh people uh, from uh, like black experience on TikTok that they were not getting the same visibility mm -hmm. right and and the same traction and they was systematically TikTok was kind of uh, was kind of mm -hmm. weeding out those 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 videos right um and the way that TikTok responded uh in one of the videos that I saw goes well we're going to train um black mm -hmm. folks, right it's mm -hmm. but that's what we do all the time right like we don't we don't want to address the systematic it's like we have to like we do this superficial um interventions so that doesn't get us anywhere you know yeah. um but yeah I, i'm always on tiktok but i always read the comments um and then because I'm, i want you know it's like it also gives me arm of like how to fight it back you know uh, yeah and i think the we need to train black creators how to be successful on the app is that that same problematic narrative that if you know black people 
if minorities just were better educated, then yeah. the pro their problems would go away, right? But like, yeah. we are not the problem. It's not yeah. us or our perceived lack that's the problem here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so I think I don't want to risk running out of time and getting cut off before you have the opportunity to, you know, say some final words, let people know of any, <laughs> of any like projects that you're working on, remind people because people join late. So mm -hmm. remind of some of the things that you're working on where they can follow you and any last thing you want to say about this. And of course, I can bring you back on too. So it's not the last time we'll talk. <laughs> uh, appreciate that. Um... Well, I'm, you know, I don't, I, like I said, I, I try to use my, I'm trying to kind of give more visibility to finding um, underscore L, which is a masculinity project. And I'm trying to have all of these conversations, our conversations that I want to have are some of the gaps that I see. Um, and I do also this work with cultural leaders, right? There's, we meet uh, every Friday from two to three Eastern time. Um, and it's, it's, we have like 18 people that joined that, that group and we have this conversation. So I think a lot of the responsibilities, when they don't bring it up, I bring it up, right? And how do we deconstruct it? What does it mean when we have this legacy of colonization and then we created, we created a narrative of otherness? How does that otherness show up in our work, right? And so it's always these conversations that we're trying to have. Um, but I think what I would say mostly is how do we work around creating uh, more representation of, of us uh, in our systems, right? Um, and I think it's also kind of thinking about uh, healing because I think that we talk a lot about colorism and effects and oppression, but what is the impact on our mental, physical, and emotional like life? Um, because I think it is when we have, when we find like our power within our own like in like our own intersections, our own like color our own like heritage i think that's when the the like the world transforms right because then you don't give a fuck about anything else you stand mm -hmm. on your own truth you lack your heritage pride and you say like i am here i am unapologetic like a lot of black folks say and do and and i think that's where the beauty comes from right like regardless of the system that you're in you're just going to be who you are um, but when you start compromising or seeking validation it comes from this narrative that you have always been the other right and so you're trying to fit in as much as you can and that really wrecks you emotionally physically uh spiritually and then you're in the systems always kind of negotiating always not speaking up always kind of feeling less than and so I think there's power when we come back to that center, you know, and it's, it is all of that beautifulness of who we are that makes us really, truly um, have freedom, you know? So I'm working on that. That's my work. That's, that's, that's where I want to get connected to. I want to lock down my heritage pride. I don't want it to be compromised by anybody outside factors. I just want to lock it in and say like, I am Peruano, there's, I have gayness, I'm a survivor, and it's just unapologetically, I am beautiful in all of it, right? Uh, and perfectly perfect, right? So that's, that's, that's my final words. <laughs> I love you, Jorge. I'm so that's glad. I appreciate this conversation <laughs> so much. All right, folks. So I'm going to let you all go. Although Black Girl Masculine mm -hmm. just us that IG extended lifetime to four hours. So I will keep that in mind. <laughs> Not for today, but you know, maybe I'll need four hours at some point in the future. <laughs> but I'll be back next week, folks. I am 
I'm going to be chatting with Edlyn Veras, who is um, Afro-Dominican. So we're going to continue in a similar vein here. Um, but thank you so much, Jorge. This has been beautiful like I knew it would, right? I, I yeah. felt your beautiful spirit through the internet months ago. And I was like, this is going to be a great live. So. <laughs> So much appreciate. I love everybody. And you know what I will do is when I go to Peru and I connect with some folks, maybe we can do an international kind of conversation and we'll think about it. I'll be in Puerto Rico next next um next week so I could present you with some people, Sarah, too. Yes. All right. All right. Un beso fuerte, abrazos. <laughs>